Well, last Sunday, we discussed the universal nature of our sin problem. Genesis is a book of beginnings and thus shares the beginning of all things. It tells us of the fall of humanity into sin, the subsequent destruction of humanity in the flood, depicting the severity of the judgment of God and his plan of salvation through that judgment. Last Sunday, we even got a glimpse of the evidence of humanity's fallenness post-flood in the sin of both Noah and his son. We're left with the reality that the greatest problem that humanity faces is not the environment. Both the first Adam and Noah literally had the whole world at their fingertips. It's not economical or the lack of resources. Our greatest problem is not political, nor is it COVID-19 or any other virus. Our greatest problem is not even each other, though sometimes we may feel that way. Our greatest problem, the greatest problem that humanity have, that each one of us has, lies within. It is the sin in our hearts. That sin presents such a problem for us precisely because our creator God, the judge of all flesh, is himself holy and righteous and good. And his holiness demands justice for sin. Our passage this morning is in Psalm 51. It is a song of confession. As we've been working through some of the different psalms, we've done so to illustrate the breadth and depth and spiritual value of the Psalter. We see that very clearly as we look at Psalm 51. It is the songbook of the people of God, and here again we're presented with a song of confession. Not just any confession, though. It is the confession of one of the greatest icons of the Old Testament, one of the greatest kings in Israel, King David. David was declared to be a man after God's own heart. This is his confession after he sinned. It is fitting that the confession came from a man of the stature of David. We tend to idolize great individuals. We tend to expect for our heroes to be blameless, and often the world shatters when we find out otherwise. The Bible doesn't shy away from painting realistic pictures of humanity. It's not a self-help book for humanity. It is not a book intended to stroke the ego of mankind, to paint the best picture, to put forth the best foot for those who have gone on before us. The word of God is the great equalizer. All fall short of the glory of God. All fall short of the splendor of his majesty. All fall short of his righteous standard. All of us break the law that we just read about this morning in Exodus, all because of the sin within our hearts. No flesh, no matter how great the pedigree, no matter how many good deeds we do, no flesh will be justified before his holy standard because we are all tainted by sin. And that is what David's confession here teaches us. Psalm 51 is a reminder that we are all in desperate need for God to cleanse our sin-stained hearts in Christ. That is our common confession. In fact, if you are a Christian, or if you're not a Christian rather, and you want to know what Christians believe, that's it. We do not believe that we are perfect. We do not believe that we have it all together. We do not confess that everyone else is a wicked sinner and we're perfect saints. To the contrary, every true Christian... Every true biblical Christian believes that we all need for God to cleanse the sinfulness of our hearts, and we all believe that God does that for us in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray together this morning. 
Our Father and our God, we do give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks that we have the opportunity to gather together freely and openly. We know that many of our brothers and sisters in the world don't have that opportunity. They don't have that privilege for many reasons. And when they do gather together, as they do meet together, they don't meet together um, in peace. They don't meet together in safety. When they meet together, they have to meet together in secret. They have to meet together wondering if the next moment the door will be kicked in and they will be dragged off, them and their families, to face not a possible death, not a possible exposure to a virus, but to face sudden death, to face immediate death, to face immediate persecution, simply for their expression of faith. But God, you've given us the privilege and freedom of gathering together openly here and now and this day. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. Uh, as we've sung already together, we pray that you would speak this morning. God, that you would speak through your word, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. I pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts collectively that they would be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're going to go again and take a look at Psalm 51 this morning. If you haven't turned there, go ahead. I'll give you just a brief outline for the passage uh, so that you can jot that down if you're taking notes. Again, in Psalm 51, just in terms of a brief outline, we have in verses 1 and 2 David's confession. Um, that's his confession proper in verses 1 and 2. We have in verses 3 through 17 an explanation of his confession. He's going to talk to us about why he's making this particular confession. And then we'll have a basic conclusion in verses 18 and 19. So real simple, confession 1 and 2, explanation in 3 through 17, and then a conclusion in 18 and 19. Well, before we get to that first point, the historical context of the psalm is clear. Look at the text again. Right there at the top, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. If you've been around church for any length of time, you've heard of David's sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel. Uh, David, as king, should have gone off to war with his army, but he decided to stay home and relax. Uh, he sort of wandered around his home aimlessly, found himself gazing upon a woman who was bathing on a roof. He took her, committed adultery with her. When she conceived in order to cover his sin, he initially called back her husband Uriah from the battlefield in hopes that he would visit with his wife. Uriah, being a righteous man, refused such comfort. He didn't want to go in and to be comforted while his other men, his other companions were on the battlefield. David then conspired with his general Joab to have Uriah sent to the front line so that he could be wiped out. David did this. He coveted, he committed adultery, he attempted to cover his sin, for which eventually led to Uriah's murder. David, the king of Israel, the shepherd of Israel, the great psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart, David did this. And because he did this, because God is not mocked, a fact that we're often reminded of through scripture, we may cover sin, we may attempt to cover sin, we may sin when no one else is around, but God sees it. If no one else sees it, no one else knows about it, God sees it. 
and our sin will find us out. He is the God who sees. We've talked about that many times before. And that brings us comfort in times of distress because he does not overlook us. He does look upon us with favor. He does keep his eyes scanning throughout the earth to see those whose hearts are right before him. But it also means that he sees us in our wickedness and that he won't allow us to persist in our wickedness. He does that ultimately for our good. Well, God did this in the life of David by means of Nathan the prophet. Nathan confronted David with one of the best Old Testament illustrations of the use of parable. He told the story of a man who had stolen the precious lamb of another. And David's indignation over this story was used to convict him of his own sin. You are that man, Nathan said. And the words that follow in our psalm, Psalm 51, are seen as an extension of that conviction that David had, his repentance before the Lord after he was confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet. Now these first two verses, as I said earlier, structurally are the first part of of the outline of this psalm. This is David's true confession. This is what he confesses before the Lord. What he says in these first two verses form the core of the whole psalm. The bulk of what he says afterward is an explanation. But when we use the word confession, what do we really mean by that? What are we actually saying? David doesn't use the word confession in the psalm. We know that that's what he's doing. This psalm is a prayer of confession to the Lord, really, for all of God's people. The Greek word for confession is one of the words that preachers often throw around that you'll hear them use in sermons over and over again. It sounds fancy, but it really does help to drive home the point. In the Greek, the word confession means to essentially say the same thing. You are saying what actually happened and not something else. Perhaps more to the point, you're saying what is true. You're not telling a lie. You're saying what God knows to be true. You're saying what God himself would say about your sin. You're saying the same thing. So what is David's confession in Psalm 51? Again, look at verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We could spend the whole morning just looking at those two verses. They really do help to summarize all of what's going on here, what's in David's heart. They do truly capture the essence of it. But specifically, what is David saying here? He says three things, really. He pleads for mercy. He admits his sin, and his requests are all rooted in the character of God. They're rooted in the mercy of God. He makes this request, this one request, this plea for mercy. He says again, have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. That is his request. He says, I need your mercy, O God. I need you, O God, to blot out my transgressions. I need you to wipe out my transgressions. I need you to make them go away. I need you to remove them from me. I need you to purge my record clean. Verse 2 is the same. He says, wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We'll talk a little bit more about that purification language later. Essentially, though, David is saying this one thing. He's making this one request. He says, I have a sin problem, and I need for you, O God, to do something about it. I need for you, O God, to cleanse me of my sin. I need for you, O God, to wash me. I can't do anything about it. I know that you are the only one who can. David is making this plea, and he's making this plea based on the mercy of God. Because he knows that God is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, 
and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He knows that about God. He trusts God for that. And he pleads with God on the basis of that. I like this quote. One author says, the first is a fierce, almost desperate clinging to God's mercy. This verse is. He says, this is profound because as many commentators have pointed out, mercy is the sole basis of any approach to God by sinners. We cannot come to God on the basis of his justice. Justice strikes us with fear and causes us to hide from him. We are not drawn to God by his wisdom. Wisdom does not embolden us, though we stand in awe of it. No more does omniscience, omnipotence, or omnipresence. The only reason we dare come to God and dare hope for a solution to our sin problem is his mercy. Notice that David takes ownership for his own sin. It is sin. He has broken the law of God. Again, we read in Exodus chapter 20, David has murdered. David has committed adultery. David has stolen. He's coveted another man's wife. He has broken the law of God. He has crossed the boundaries that God has set in his word. David uses three different terms for sin in the verse. He talks about transgressions, iniquity, and sin. We're not really going to try to define each of those. There's no reason to. David is using them synonymously. He's just making clear that he knows he's broken God's law. He takes ownership further as he says that it is my sin. It's not the product of his upbringing. It was not the product of a decision or influences of others, those around him. It's not the consequences of his environment growing up in a particular place or other influences that he may have. David doesn't say here, the devil made me do it. He says, this is my sin. It's my transgression. It's my iniquity. He takes ownership of his sin and he understands the effect that his sin has on his person, his, his himself before God. He acknowledges that his sin makes him in need of cleansing. He says, wash me, cleanse me. He knows that he is dirty. Again, this is more of that purification language. David knows that his sin is not benign. It's not something external to him. It is something that makes him personally dirty and in need of cleansing before God. Notice that he roots his request again in the character and promises of God. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Why? According to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, he says, blot out my sin. You are merciful, so be merciful to me. You are merciful, and you have promised to be merciful to your people, so be merciful to me. Remember, when we see the term steadfast love, what is he referring to? He's talking about his covenant faithfulness. He's talking about the promise of God to his people, his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bless them, and through them to bring blessing to all people on the face of the earth. God has said that he was going to do that. God has promised that he was going to do that, and he knows that his sin could prevent that from happening. And so he pleads to God for mercy on the basis of that, that God would fulfill his promise by being merciful to him as the king of Israel. So many of God's people have pleaded for that in years past. This is what Moses did for years, wandering in the wilderness with the people of God who failed over and over again. Those who sinned greatly against the Lord, each time Moses interceded, and again he did so on the basis of God's character and his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses pleaded with God over and over again that he would forgive the people for their sin because he made a promise to keep these people and to bless this people for the good of all people. 
Again, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Again, we're going through Genesis. He wrote it so that the people who are coming out of Egypt and going into the land would be instructed that they would understand, that they would, they would see and understand the importance of this promise that God made to his people, that they would see and understand the heinousness of their sin before God, that God is holy, that God expects for them to be holy and righteous and good, and that they need God's cleansing power. They need for God to work in order to be cleansed. Sin is the universal problem. It's not just a problem for Israel. It's a problem for all people. God has made a plan for that, and they needed to be reminded of that truth. David says, I know that I have sinned. I know that I have sinned in what I did. I know that my sin problem makes me filthy before you, and I'm pleading according to the merciful covenant, keeping God to mercifully take away my sin. Ultimately, that steadfast love, that covenant faithfulness points to Jesus For he is the one who would come from Israel to bring blessing to all humanity. It is the righteous life of Jesus that makes his sacrifice on our behalf so effective. Moreover, it is his righteous life that he completely kept the law of his God. It is this truth that made it necessary for him to rise again. His righteousness made it fitting that he should be Lord over all, granting life to all who believe. I think it was John Newton who said in his older age, although my memory is failing, I remember these two things. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. That's what we fall back on. That's what we plead before God. That's how we can come before God. Not because we always do good and right, but because we are dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. We're wretches. Because we plead for the mercy of God on the basis of the greatness of Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his righteous sacrifice on our behalf. Again, David's confession. God, I need you to cleanse me from my sin. You are the only one who's willing because you are the only one who can and you are the one who has promised to do so in Christ Well, that was only two verses. We're going to move a little bit more quickly through the explanation section, I think. In this section, again, David dives a little deeper into the why of his confession. Why does he believe that God is the only one who can cleanse him of his sin? Why does he come before the Lord for this? Why does he even state that God is the only one against whom he sinned? Where does that come from? Well, as with any text, when you see the word for, you know that there is an explanation coming. Take a look at these verses with me. Verse 3, David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips, 
And my praise, my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Well, again, David is giving us an explanation here. Why does he need for God to cleanse him of his sin? He says, I am a dirty, rotten, stinking sinner. I can't do anything about it. That's why I need you. You're the only one who can. Look at verses 3 through 5 again. Where he says there, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. When we talk about depravity and use the term totally depraved, what do we mean by that? Well, to be totally depraved means to be morally bankrupt. It means to be thoroughly wicked. It means to be wholly and completely devoid of any spiritual good. And David owns this. He acknowledges that this is true about him. He says, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Each of us knows what we're capable of and each of us knows what we're culpable for. We know what sin we could commit. We know what sin we have committed and we know that we are guilty. It may be easier to point out the sin of others and to blame the world around us for sin, our moral failures, but they are nevertheless our moral moral failures. It is our sin. More than that, David is acquainted with his own sin, and he knows that his sin makes him guilty before God. We've talked about that already. He says in verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You ever wonder why you desire justice? When you're wronged against? We never question that feeling. Even in the media, when tragedy strikes, when someone is wronged or oppressed, someone is taken advantage of, their life is ended at the hands of another, there's often a universal and unmitigated cry for justice. Why is that? If, according to the common worldview, there is no God, then there is no purpose, there's no design, there's no standard. Survival of the fittest should rule. And if someone is greater and able to take advantage of you, then they really should. They should be able to do that, and there should be no problem with it. There should be no complaint. Because that should be the law of the land. But we don't live like that. And we don't expect for others to treat us that way. And we don't expect for the authorities that are over us and our judges to judge that way, particularly when the transgression affects us. We cry out for justice in those times. But we don't often think about the need for justice when it comes to our own sin, when it comes to our own offenses against another. That fact is indicative of our wickedness. If we were half as concerned for justice when we sin against others as we are when others sin against us, I think we'd be on to something. But often we're quite oblivious to it. Sin is very deceptive that way. Harvey Weinstein, who used to be an influential Hollywood promoter in recent years, is accused of multiple accounts of sexual assault. He's been going through trials. He'll have many more trials to go. He's already been sentenced once for 23 years in prison, probably spend the rest of his life in prison with just that alone, but he's not done yet. During one of the most recent trials, he was quoted as stating that he was, quote, remorseful and yet totally confused at what happened to him. Notice that language, and that language, I think, was intentional. He said he was confused at what happened to him. How did all of this happen to him? How could it have happened? He is remorseful, and yet he claims no responsibility for his actions. This all just happened to me. 
Weinstein's words are a far cry from David's acknowledgement here. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment, he says to God. David knows that it is his sin that makes him wicked in the eyes of God. His sin is evil in the sight of God. This is the essence of his confession. Again, saying the same thing. God, you are right. My ways are evil. They do not measure up to your holy standard. I have sinned against you. Again, when we talk about a person being depraved, devoid of any spiritual good, that is the point. It's not that a person who is depraved, who is a sinner, cannot do anything good for someone else. It's not that the person who is depraved cannot do anything good in the eyes of the society. It is that all their deeds have no spiritual value to God. There's no spiritual good that a person can do before God because they've already broken his law. And that breaking of the law of God, breaking of any aspect of the law of God, Scripture says, makes you guilty of all. We have to understand this. This is at the core of the gospel message to the unbelieving world. There's no good thing that a man may do to overcome the breaking of God's law. Once you've broken it at one point, you are a lawbreaker and you deserve judgment, period. If you drive over the speed limit, I think I've used this illustration before. If you drive over the speed limit, you've broken the law. If you get pulled over, you have no recourse. You have broken the law, and so you deserve the consequence of that, period. This also highlights the truth that our sin is so much more than the act of sin. The burden of our sin, the substance of our sin is much more than the act. Thus, the remedy has to involve more than another act. In other words, it's not just that we have done wickedly so we can do good to counteract. One thing outweighs the other. David did wickedly. This wickedness had a great impact on those around him. But that only highlighted the wickedness of his heart before God. And it is the wickedness of his heart before God that is the primary issue. That is his, this is his greatest concern here. It is his heart wickedness that he's pleading for God to fix. He says, I'm dirty, but I'm not dirty on the outside because I've sinned. I'm dirty on the inside. That's the issue. And he's asking for God to do something about that. As a believer, as we know that Christ has covered our sin, that Christ died particularly to ransom us from our sin, that he took the penalty for our law-breaking on the cross. The penalty for sin is death, Scripture says. Therefore, Christ died so that the penalty that we deserve might be satisfied. And we, in turn, as a free gift of God, are given the righteousness of Christ. He lived a righteous life. He kept all of God's word. He broke none of his law. Therefore, he is called the righteous one, rightly, so we of all people understand that when we sin, we're breaking the law of God. When we sin, we're dishonoring the goodness of the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. And that is a heart issue. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Again, when we sin, we need to be reminded of the truths of the gospel. That our salvation was not for nothing. It did cost something. It cost Christ his life. And now our life is not our own to live as we desire. But rather it is the life of Christ in us. The life we now live ought to be an expression of love and faith in the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. When we sin now as believers, we sin against him. Do you get that? 
We sin against the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. You may feel like you have no one else in the world who loves you. You may feel totally and completely alone in the world. Someone might have told you just this past week that they hate your guts. But God has never said that. God has never declared that. God has only openly declared his love for you. He's done that in his word, and he did that on the cross. And so we have no excuse. I want to make clear here that David is not minimizing the impact of his sin to those around him. He's already been burdened by that reality when Nathan confronted him. There were great consequences for others, and he would have consequences, great consequences for this and other sinful choices that would follow him the rest of his life. I tell my children all the time, with each passing year, the older you get, the greater the consequences of your sin, and really the greater impact your sin is going to have on other people. I think that's something that we miss. David is not minimizing the impact of his sin on others, but rather highlighting the significance of his sin before God against you, you only. That is meant to function as a poetic comparison. You only. There's really no one else. The greatness of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God demands that we see the significance of our sin before him. We sin. Every single time we sin, we sin against him. It is dishonoring to him. And so indeed, he is just when he judges. He is blameless in his judgments. And that is what we must confess. God, you are right and I am wrong. I have sinned against another. I ought to confess that to them. I ought to seek forgiveness. But I ought to first come before God and confess my sin before him. Against you and you only have I sinned. And you are right in your judgments. He continues in verse 5, David says, I know of my sin. I know that it makes me guilty before you, and I know that this has been so from birth. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. A lot has been made of this verse. He's not saying that his mother sinned when he was conceived. He's not necessarily speaking to the inherent sinful nature of all humanity. He may be, but not necessarily. I believe that in context, again, this being poetry, David is simply communicating that he is so thoroughly sinful that he has been so from birth. Sin is so wrapped up in who he is as a person. He's confessing that before God. He's humbling himself before the Lord. He's saying, this has been so from birth. So what can I do to fix it? He's saying, I can't do anything about this. I'm a sinner now. I've been a sinner from birth. God, I'm pleading for mercy on that basis. He needs the Lord's help to intervene. Verse 6 is interesting. He says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, both verses 5 and 6 start with that word behold in the original and in English. David is calling attention to something here poetically. He is, in essence, contrasting himself with the Lord. As he's been building his case in verses 3 through 5, pleading for cleansing from the Lord, he's building up to this point in the passage. See the connection there. He says, behold, I am thoroughly wicked, again, even from birth, wicked to the core, But you delight in truth on the inside, in the inward being, in the secret heart. You desire truth. You desire truth for your people to be filled with. David is building, again, building his case and pleading for the Lord's cleansing help. He says, I am wicked. You desire truth. You teach truth. You impart truth. In other words, God, I cannot do this on my own. I need you to make this happen in my life. David is declaring his total dependence on God. And look back at verses 1 and 2. 
the core of his confession. He says, God, I need you to cleanse me from my sin. You're the only one who's willing because you are merciful and you're the only one who can because you have promised. And again, verses 3 through 14 are an explanation. Why do I need for God to cleanse me from my sin? Verses 3 through 5, I'm rotten to the core. I'm totally depraved even from birth. My heart is the issue. I have sin in my heart and I can't get rid of it. You desire truth in the inner man. You're the only one who can teach truth. You deliver truth. I need you for that. In verses 7 through 17, he makes a plea again, for your sake, for your glory, cleanse and restore my heart. We're going to take a look now at those verses. And we could spend a lot of time here, but we're just going to kind of move through. I'm going to point out a number of different things as we go along. In verses 7 through 17, I've already read them. Um, so just kind of follow along. I'll call out a number of verses as we go. David pleads for purification of his heart before the Lord. There's a lot of that, uh, as I mentioned before, purification language in this section. Listen to his words. He says, purge me with hyssop. He says, wash me. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. David understands that he has broken the law of God. He understands that intentional murder has no specific sacrifice listed in the law. So again, on the basis of the covenant faithfulness of God, David is pleading for cleansing from this. One author says, what dirt is to the body, sin is to the inner person. So it was right for David to feel defiled because of what he had done. By committing adultery and murder, he had crossed over the line that God had drawn in his law. He had missed the mark that God had set for him, and he had yielded to his twisted and sinful nature. He had willfully rebelled against God, and no atonement was provided in the law for such a deliberate sin. David could only appeal to God's grace. He could only appeal to God's mercy. David knows that he's dirty before God, and as a result, he's pleading for God to cleanse him. He knows that the washing in a river will not help. Washing in his hands will not help. Doing good deeds will not help. He needs for God to wash him on the inside, to cleanse him from within. He pleads for reconciliation as he knows that his sin has affected his relationship with God. Listen to these verses. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, you ever wonder why so many people who live life apart from God suffer with depression, discouragement? Are living a broken and downtrodden life? Sin does that. So many, even today, who have gone the way of the moral revolution find themselves eventually dissatisfied, failing to find joy in their casting aside of the prior generation standards of morality and awareness of the God of the Bible. They ultimately find no joy in that, no satisfaction in that. So you see people committing suicide or doing other destructive things. The people of God also at times suffer with seasons of discouragement. When we break faith, so to speak, and are living in unrepentant sin, whether the sin, whatever the sin is, it affects our relationship with God. Some people call that losing fellowship with God. In reality, we can never lose fellowship with God because God is the one who holds us in fellowship, right? That's John chapter 10. We can never lose that, but sometimes we do feel distant from him. And often, not always, we feel distant from him, that, that lack of fellowship, because of sin. 
This sentiment is probably most closely related to David's words where he asks, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast, not away your, cast me not away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David is pleading with God. He says, I, don't, I feel far from you right now. I know that my heart is completely and totally wicked. I need for you to do something new in my heart, in my life. He's pleading for God to be close. It may be our own personal sin. It may be the sin of another. It may simply be due to the way we think about life, focusing on things that are not true, just not helpful for us. Instead of thinking on the truth and the goodness of God, we could be dwelling on other things. We could be thinking on how awful the spread of this virus is and becoming worried and anxious about it. Paul talks about the way we think in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, and he encourages, there, encourages us there to think on what is good and right and true. So we be reminded of God's goodness. But there are those times when we feel distant from God, and it is in those times when we experience what David is experiencing here. And it's also in those times when we need to, as David does, plead with God to draw us back. David says, again, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He says that his lips have been sealed shut. His joy has been sapped. His spirit needs renewing. His bones have been broken. He feels that he's far from the presence of God. But instead of wallowing in that feeling, David pleads with God to restore. The same, again, ought to be true for us. When we feel distant from God, we are tempted to move further away from him. We're tempted to give up, to stop pursuing, to stop trying, to stop coming to fellowship, which, by the way, is one of the means that God uses to encourage us the most. Nearness to God is the very thing that we need in those times. David actually says in another psalm, the nearness of God is my good. When we feel far away, we must be resolved to keep pursuing, to keep seeking. I like this quote from A.W. Tozer, and this was written many, many years ago. He says, how tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ. He says a term, incidentally, which is not found in the Bible. And, which are, and we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. He says, we have been snared in the coils of a spurious logic which insists that if we have been found by him, we have no more need to seek him. He says, I want to deliberately encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. David says, God, I need you. He feels distant. He feels far away. He could be tempted to continue to fall away from the Lord. But David's response is, I need the Lord even more right now. I need to cling to him even more right now. I need to pursue him even more right now. And beloved, that is how you ought to be as well. When you feel at your lowest, you ought to resolve, God, I need you right now. And don't feel ashamed about saying that. Don't feel ashamed about singing that out in the congregation because each of us does. Don't walk around here with the heavy burdens that you bear every single day as if you are alone in this life, in this world. Don't put on a happy face when you are weeping inside. We are here together to weep with those who weep. 
and to rejoice with those who rejoice and to cry out for mercy from our merciful God when we need it. That's why we gather. Again, David pleads for purification, reconciliation, and restoration. Restoration to do what? Look at these verses. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold a willing spirit. Why? Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. Why? And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips. Why? And my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He pleads for restoration. Often when we sin and are found out, we weep. This is that child that falls to pieces when they're confronted with their sin and are made to experience the consequences of it. We weep, it may seem, to humanize because we are contrite, but often we weep because we've been found out. We weep because there are consequences that we're not prepared to absorb. We weep because we want pity from others. We weep to be consoled. We weep because, like Harvey Weinstein, we just don't know how this happened to us. We weep for selfish reasons, with selfish motives in our hearts. We want the pain of the consequences of our sin to go away. We are not so much concerned with the sin in our hearts just going away, just the effect of it. We are sorry and we ask for forgiveness, but we're not repentant. That is the effect of a prideful heart in response to conviction. David here illustrates godly repentance. Godly sorrow, scripture says, leads to repentance. And repentance leads to restoration. His desire is to return to do what the Lord has required of him, what the Lord has saved him to do. He wants to have his relationship with the Lord restored, that sense of fellowship with the Lord restored that was lost due to his sin, so that he might continue to serve the Lord with his life. And that is really the crucial difference between godly sorrow and ungodly sorrow. One says, I just want to get past this. I want to get through it. I want for these consequences to be over. The other says, I need to be close with God again. And I want to be able to serve the Lord again. And I know that I cannot right now. Again, David knows what God desires. He knows what God requires of him. He knows what brings glory to God. It's not his own personal well-being. It's not his own personal comfort just getting through, again, the consequences. He knows that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, a humble heart, a heart that bows down before God, a heart that is not lifted up in pride and unrighteous desire, but a heart that responds with humility before the convicting, chastening hands of God. A heart that is humble is a heart that desires to serve the Lord no matter what. A humble heart is a heart that desires to speak of the righteousness of God, to speak his praise. Again, a heart that is twisted with sin lifts up itself against the Lord. It refuses to speak of the righteousness of God. It refuses to speak of his goodness. It only knows itself. It only speaks of itself, what it's lost, how others have wronged it. It never seeks to honor the Lord. Sin is very deceitful in that way. In the wisdom of God, he will bring chastening into our lives to bring us to that point of humility. No one enjoys a chastening hand of God. Hebrews chapter 12, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. The difference between the believer, the difference for the believer, is that they understand and appreciate the last part of that verse. Again, it says all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. But for those who are trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
And that's what we look forward to on the other end of discipline. The chastening hand of God is not for us to bristle against. God does it. God chastens when we sin because he loves us, because he desires for us to return to him. If he didn't love us, then he wouldn't chasten. That would mean that we are illegitimate as children. If you're able to linger long in sin without conviction, without chastening, then you should wonder whether you are actually in the faith. Because God chastens those whom he loves. He chastens his children. And when we are chastened, again, just as David suggests in our text, we should know that the Lord does it to bring about that broken and contrite heart within us. Thus, our response should be to welcome the process, to suffer whatever consequences we must, to jump through whatever hoops we must, not ultimately for the sake of the people around us, but for the sake of our relationship with God. We embrace his chastening precisely for that broken and contrite heart that comes as a result and for the restoration that will follow again so that we might continue to serve the Lord from a pure heart. I like this description here of that broken and contrite heart that one author gives us. He says, see here what the good work is that is wrought in every true repentant person. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. It is a work wrought upon the heart that is, it that, that is that God looks at and requires in all religious exercises, particularly in the exercises of repentance. It is a sharp work wrought there, no less than the breaking of the heart, not in despair, as we say, when a man is undone, his heart is broken, but in necessary humiliation and sorrow for sin. It is a heart breaking with itself and breaking from its sin. It is a heart pliable to the word of God and patient under the rod of God, a heart subdued and brought into obedience. It is a heart that is tender, like Josiah's, and trembles at God's word. Oh, that there were such a heart in all of us. He goes on and he says this, the sacrifice was bound, bled, was burnt. So the penitent heart is bound by convictions, bleeds in contrition, and then burns in holy zeal against sin and for God. He says the sacrifice was offered upon the altar that sanctified the gift, so the broken heart is acceptable to God only through Jesus Christ. There's no true repentance without faith in him. And this is the sacrifice which he will not despise. Men despise that which is broken, but God will not. He despised the sacrifice of torn and broken beasts, but he will not despise that of a torn and broken heart. He will not overlook it. He will not refuse or reject it. Though it make God no satisfaction for the wrong done by him, Yet it, he does not despise it. I like that description. He talks about having a broken and contrite heart and what that looks like. That's something that we should pray for. When we struggle with sin, whatever the sin might be we're struggling with, we need to be praying that God would break our hearts over that sin. Not just that we would not do the sin. It's so easy to pray for that, right? God, help me not to do whatever. Yeah. Amen. Amen. But the sin comes from within. It's not just the thing that we do externally. That's the manifestation of sin. The sin is what happens in our heart before God. And so we ought to be praying that God would break our hearts before him about the sin. When you know of someone else who is struggling with sin, a brother, a sister, a family member, a friend, you need to be praying that God would break their hearts about sin. Not just that they would stop doing the thing that they're doing that's wrong. That's not a worthy enough prayer. 
you need to be praying that God would break their heart over their sin. That's when God does the work. That's how God does the work. Again, David's confession, God, I need you to cleanse me from my sin. You're the only one who, who can. Because of your mercy, you're the only one who will. Because of your promise. I need God to cleanse me. I cannot cleanse my own heart. God desires for us to have pure hearts, so we must seek him. We must plead with him for that broken and contrite heart before him. He does that work in us. So where does that leave us? Look at verses 18 and 19. Again in Psalm 51. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Sounds kind of like David is completely shifting gears here, but he really isn't. Point out just a couple of things. Again, David began this psalm with reference to the covenant faithfulness of God. Have mercy according to your steadfast love. Again, that reference, as mentioned earlier, has everything to do with God's faithfulness to bless his people collectively and through them to bless all nations. He's talking about his redemptive plan. David, as king, knew that his sin had an impact not only at Bathsheba and Uriah and the baby that was born to Bathsheba, but also on all of God's people. His sin could have affected the entire nation if God had chosen to do so. David's plea, both for his cleansing as well as for the good of the nation, is all rooted in his understanding of the covenant faithfulness of God, the plan of redemption that God has been working since Genesis 3. Have mercy on me. Continue to work out your plan of redemption for all people. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Continue to work out your plan of redemption for all people. The psalm ends where it began. Again, David says, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole whole." burnt offerings. He says that sacrifice previously is not what God requires, but a broken and contrite heart. So what does he really mean by that? What he's actually saying here is that when the people of God have broken hearts, then they will offer right sacrifices. David is asking that God would do for them, for Zion, what he's asking for himself. He says, make their hearts right, just as I'm asking for my heart to be made right, so that when they offer sacrifices, those will be pleasing to you. David knows his own sin, and yet he also knows the sin of his people. In this, David is functioning as both priest and king and making a request on behalf of the people. When you read through Leviticus, which I know you all do in your spare time because you love Leviticus, (laughs) and you get to around chapter 16, you see that the priesthood had to offer sacrifices both for themselves and for the people. They had to be concerned with being right themselves before God, and then they would make the request for the people of God. The priests were reminded daily, monthly, and yearly by their service in facilitating sacrifices of the importance of the community and community worship. I wish that there was some way for us to have that same tangible reminder. The people of God in the first century had that kind of daily reminder built into their lives because they were outcasts. They were rejects, outcasts from society in general, outcasts from Israel in particular as followers of Christ as a Messiah. They had to cling to each other. They had to cling to each other in fellowship. They needed each other. Beloved, we are a family. We are the family of God. As we're doing this morning, we gather together to love, to care for, to serve, to remind, to rebuke, and generally to encourage one another. Never forget the significance of our gathering together. As I mentioned earlier, there are many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who don't have the opportunity to do this. And when they do it, 
Their anticipation, again, not at all to make light of the virus, their anticipation is not that they may get sick in two weeks. It's not that they may possibly have some sort of prolonged hospital stay. It's not that they may die from it. It's that they would die from it. They suffer with that realization every time they gather together that someone would, again, kick in the door, drag them out screaming for their faith in Christ. But we have the ability to meet freely and openly. We have the ability to gather together to encourage one another, and we ought to take every opportunity to do that. Again, the priesthood was aware of the importance of the community. David was aware of the importance of the community. In his prayer here, he's reminding us of that truth, and he's pointing us to the greater David, the greater Adam, to the greater high priest whom God has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is working out his plan of redemption through his people, for all people, in Jesus Christ and in the church. The writer of Hebrews says of Jesus that he is the guarantor of a greater and better covenant. He says the former priests were many in number because they were presented by death from continuing, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He says he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as priests, but the word of the oath came later. Then the law appoints a son who's been made perfect forever, and that son is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has been made our great high priest forever by the word of God. Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners kind of sacrifice is effective forever. Jesus has been made perfect forever by his resurrection. Therefore, Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. So I would ask you, what have we to fear in this life? God is for us. Who or what can ever be against us? Neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor viruses, nor natural disasters will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, Psalm 1 is a psalm of confession. David's confession is our confession as the people of God. I need for God to cleanse my wicked heart. I know that he does that in Christ and in Christ alone. That is our confession and that is our confidence. We are those who plead for the mercy of God on the basis of Jesus Christ, who is forever our Savior. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his salvation, which he worked out on the cross. We thank you for his death, burial, and resurrection. We thank you even for his righteous life, the righteous life that he lived on our behalf. We thank you that now that we are in Christ, that we are his and he is ours, that we have nothing to fear. God, help us to live in that confidence daily. Help us to live in that confidence today and to proclaim that confidence to those who do not know you. For your glory and our good, in Christ's name, amen.